What's happening, Hardscapers? This is episode 163 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And today I'm joined by Peter and George of Oriole Landscaping. They've been in business for quite some time now, have lots of great stories to share, and also consult businesses on how they can grow their business in a systematic way. And we get into a variety of topics. And if you need bookkeeping, accounting, or CFO services, you should reach out to Cycle CPA. That's CycleCPA.com and let them know that How to Hardscape sent you to get $200 off their services, as well as in-light outdoor lighting. If you're in need of outdoor lighting products, they have excellent quality products to share with you. Check them out at Inlight Design on Instagram. That's I-N-L-I-T-E Design. Take a look at the projects that they post there for some inspiration and to get to see more of their products that they have available on the market. And without further ado, let's get into our interview with Peter and George. Today we're joined by George and Peter of Oriole Landscaping and Knowledge Tree Consulting where they guide companies to success through their six branches of business. I'm sure we're going to be getting into that today. George and Peter, thank you so much for joining me here. Thanks for having us, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I want to get started to get to know a little bit more about the two of you, uh, starting with giving our audience a little bit of context about how you two got started into the industry, how the landscaping business gets started, and then we'll kind of push towards this consulting business that you also have as well. But let's get started to get to know more about the two of you. Whoever wants to start this first, let us know how you got started in this industry. Yeah, it was, it's a funny story, I guess. George and I grew up as neighbors since, uh, I don't know, I was maybe I was three years old when I first met George. So uh, we knew each other all through uh, school. And it was after high school that uh, George started a, a, a summer business while he was at uh, university. And I was coming home from school one day and I, uh, I saw him in his driveway and I offered to give him a hand. And, uh, you know, to help him with a trailer he was putting together for this venture. And uh, he offered me a job. And I'm like, yeah, I got nothing else to do. I'm like, my summer's starting off and I haven't heard back from my, my uh, applications. So I said, sure. And uh, I had no intention of being a landscaper, but, uh, but it was, you know, it just, it seemed like a fun thing to do. So uh, I went out and I worked with George for a couple of days and he, he realized he needed some help and uh, some permanent help for the season. So he offered me a partnership for that season. And I think, I don't know if it was expected that it would be such a, like even more than that one season, but, uh, but we did have a lot of fun that season. Peter was the hardest worker and, um, and uh, showed up every day, which is a good thing. So, um, so I said, if you get a chainsaw, trimmer, and a, and a lawnmower, uh, then you can be my equal partner. That, that was it. And Peter said, okay. So he went and bought a, a huge chainsaw, which was beyond our pay grade, and, uh, and a mower and a trimmer. And uh, we had two mowers and two trimmers and a big chainsaw. And that, was, that was it. <laughs> gotcha. No, no planning, all accidents. So Peter's got a little buy-in into the company at this point. How, how does this kind of progress? At what point do the two of you decide that, you know what, this is, 
you're going to start to really invest into the, this business and really push it forward. What was that sort of catalyst that made you guys kind of make it a little bit more official than uh, purchase this equipment? And I'll, I'll bring you into the business. So uh, a little bit more background. Peter's dad was an architect. My dad was an engineer. And they both basically, we were, we were cheap labor for them to build whatever things they were doing around the hot house or the cottage. So we learned the hand skills <laughs> the hard way. And we didn't have a plan. It literally was, let's just work and party and pay for school. That was it. And we both loved trucks and bobcats and excavators. And we just started buying stuff. And we hired all the neighborhood kids, like literally the entire street and the surrounding streets. And we did work for all the parents of those kids and the neighbors. And, and we just never said no to anything. We just, whether it was cutting a tree that we shouldn't have, you know, with no training or whether we um, dug out a driveway and built a driveway or whatever it was, we just started doing it. And it's not the way to do it, mind you, but we survived it. And uh, that's sort of what happened. There was no plan. It was just a pure, pure accident. We had some really cool trucks and we went, you know, on some really great ski trips in the wintertime. So that was big motivation. Um, paid for university and uh, we were pretty cool. We had some pretty cool trucks and all the kids at the university liked it. So good, good, uh, good transportation to and from the bars. Awesome. Yeah. So, so it's taken a little bit, I would say, uh, to another level once you guys decide to uh, make this sort of like your, your career, essentially. Where does that come into the story? It, it wasn't too long. Like we were still at university. I think we were in like fourth year and we had a dump truck and a Bobcat and a big float. And we had five employees maybe that last summer of university and we were having a great time. And we had, uh, I mean, there was huge potential for our business at that time. And, and uh, perhaps fortuitously it was on the cusp of a recession in 1990 and uh, we hadn't really invested much more than that in our business. So uh, we had chosen to go for it, but uh, we hadn't really put our necks out. And we were able to work through those early 90s um, just by working hard and long hours and saying yes to everything, like, like George was saying. The first five years of our business was basically the School of Hard Knocks. And... Uh, and we were, I mean, we were, it was a struggle. Like we'd always think, oh, we'd, we're going to make this much money this summer and we'd make a little bit less and we'd be frustrated and disappointed. And there was one point, I think in 93 or 94, and George and I said, you know what, we're going to, let's just go out of business. Let's raise our prices. Let's, you know, charge what we have to charge to make what we want to make. And if we don't get work, then who cares? We'll shut it down and we'll do something else. And, uh, and lo and behold, clients kept hiring us. And the more we charged, the more we could do for our clients, and the happier our clients were, and we'd get better jobs. And we realized maybe around the mid-90s that the pathway to success for us was to charge a lot of money and do work for clients that could afford good quality landscaping and, uh, and that's, a, that's much better than the clients that are nickel and diming all the time, for sure. So we, uh, we had, that was a turning point for us in the mid nineties. And, uh, and that's when it started to really grow for us. 
Yeah, so we, we were willing to fail like quickly, and uh, and I think that was the that was the the catalyst to our success. And then, ironically, we, the next big mistake we made was we actually made, I think, a quarter million dollar profit or something like that. This was way back then, like thirty years ago, and uh, or twenty eight years ago, and um, maybe more than that. But um, the the we took all that money and we basically bought our trucks for cash to save interest because the interest rates were really high. Well, we almost went out of business on cash flow. So that was, that was a big cash flow lesson. So anyway, whatever you can do wrong, um, we've done and survived it. And uh, as Peter looked up the definition of uh, the word expert somewhere in the dictionary, um, there's a picture of Peter and me, myself, uh, for having survived their stupidity. Um, and uh, so the, the trick is to have other people not make the mistakes we made and, um, and not suffer um, as much as we did. So, yeah, we went, we went through a lot before we realized that uh, there's an easier way. And uh, I think we hired a consultant in early 2000. And that was when we really had our first sort of eye opening that, you know what, there's, there's a way to think about this more systematically and to approach it a little more professionally. And, uh, and that really was uh, sort of the next turning point for us where we started to create these systems and, and organization that, that made our lives much, much easier. Yeah. So we went from working, you know, 3000 hours to, you know, 2200 hours. And now we make, maybe we work 1800 hours a year or something. Right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's not just how much money you make, but it's the quality of your life. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're young, it doesn't matter. But as you get older and you have kids and mortgages and all those other things, um, you realize working isn't everything. So um, that, was, that was a big kind of seismic shift. It had to happen. First, we made money, then we worked less. So that was the trick is to work less and make more money. In that order. This uh, brings up a lot of different things that I want to ask you about. You mentioned raising prices and, and the risk involved in doing that at that time. And you were willing to go out of business in order to do that. Where did those clients come from? Where you make that shift in going for clients that are specifically, you know, willing to pay for the value that you're providing, providing them? Like where was it a matter of getting those first initial and then because typically like-minded people know like-minded people and spread that word of mouth. Was that how you kind of got that snowball going or did you get some sort of marketing push in order to start to accumulate these leads of like-minded people? How, how does that kind of happen for the two of you? We did have a, a very simplified marketing plan in the early nineties, mid nineties. Um, you know, we made sure our trucks were always clean and, and uh, organized. We made sure, um, our job sites were clean. We had lawn signs on, and we would we would pursue and price the jobs that we wanted, and we'd say no to stuff that is you know beyond either our geographic area or below our capability. Sort of in terms of size, we had to say no to small stuff. And it really is like you said: if you do a nice fence for somebody, you'll get more fences. If you do a nice driveway for somebody, you'll get more driveways. And uh, I, I think it's 
it really is like a big snowball. It, I think it was 96 was the first Canada Blooms and we had a garden in there. And that was where we were able to showcase our skills to new uh, customers, potential customers as well. We did grow a lot in those early years of Canada Blooms with uh, with a number of feature gardens there. And that helped in that early growth phase. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if the return on investment was one-to-one, but long-term it had a cumulative effect to build the brand. So those shows were very useful. Um, but what in, in terms of process, in terms of raising the price, you asked a specific question about what was the catalyst to raise the Well, one of it was just absolutely pure, like we just didn't care. It's like either we make more money or we go out of business. And as Einstein said, um, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is insanity. So, um, you know, we, 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 just, we just decided to raise the price. And the way we did it was I used to have a sheet really simple. So I said we had a five-day job. I had day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Then I would list what we would do on each day, right? Done. And then I would have our crew rate, including the Bobcat, the truck, the guys and everything profit built in. I think way back at the beginning, it was like set at 800 bucks a day or something like that. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make it 1200, see what happens. New customer comes, I use the same method, right? And I didn't understand my costs completely, all those things. And we get the job. And then um, you know what? Let's go for fifteen hundred. See what happens. So we had a repeatable method of work, and we would test the market with a standardized price increase. And I think within a year and a half, this is crazy, but we went from like eight hundred bucks to twenty eight hundred bucks. Okay, same same job, same type of job, same network. We stopped getting work like completely, like twenty eight hundred bucks. No, like we were done. So we backed it down to twenty five hundred bucks a day for all that stuff plus materials and uh man we started to make a lot of money and so fear is is a is terrible it holds you back and um you know nothing's going to change unless you try something so especially if it's continuing the same old thing like the easiest thing you can do is raise your price it requires zero effort zero effort and so i'm i love zero effort and lots of returns. So <laughs> that's what Peter and I did. It, and there's no better market uh, than the past couple of years that we've had actually since, you know, 2000 and when was the recession eight that, you know, we've been kind of on this upper trend of outdoor living to test the market the way you said with raising your prices, it's never been a better time to be able to do that. And um, another thing that I want to talk to the two of you about is, what, what do you two do in Oriole landscaping during this uh, time period? And how has that evolved over the time? And how, how did you decide what each of you were going to do in the business? It's a lot to kind of unpack there. But what uh, essentially, what do the two of you do in the business? And how has that evolved over time? So we, we, we each have different skill sets. So... Um, Peter has a, I forgot the guy's name, but basically there's a concept of the hedgehog and the fox. So the fox is crafty and can do anything. And the hedgehog is really good at like one thing. And so the combination of the hedgehog and the fox makes for really, really useful combination of talent. So I am focused on order and process. And Peter is focused on keeping the boat from flipping over and um, directing where we're going to go. 
So, um, you know, Peter, was, I was responsible for operations, uh, human resources in the beginning. And um, we both sold. We did both sales. Peter was responsible for marketing. He did sales. And um, Peter was responsible for technology. Um, I, I would normally find the technology and then Peter would kind of do the more difficult parts of, of the technology piece. Um, and then the finance, um, Peter would basically do, uh, in the beginning, we both did the finance, you know, the bookkeeping and all that stuff. And Peter ended up taking that over. And then I decided to go to take a quick uh, a QuickBooks course or simply accounting course uh, downtown at Ryerson. And um, the teacher was amazing. And I said to the teacher, um, you know, how much do you charge? And she said, you can't afford me. And so I said to the teacher, well, tell me what I can't afford is. She said, I'm going to charge you 30 bucks an hour. This is our 25 years ago. I'm like, you're hired. She goes, well, what do you mean? I'm like, listen, you're five times as fast as me. And, you know, twice as, twice as good, 10 times as good. Like the 30 bucks an hour is peanuts. I never looked at what I was paying. I was looking at the value. So we had our first controller, which basically freed Peter up. And um, that's one of the key, key moves that I, I, I think enabled Peter and I to do what we do best. We can both do it, but we don't like doing it. And so if you don't like doing it, you're not going to get very good at it, right? Um, so then it allowed us to focus on you know, me doing the operations. He was sales and marketing. I was doing some sales, client manager. We both did design. We hired a couple of professional designers and, um, and off it went. So, but we both, we both, you know, there's so many things to worry about in a business. There's so many hats you have to wear. At least with Peter and I, we divided them in half. And we were actually very good at our competencies. And I think, you know, if you try and do it by yourself and you don't have, typically it's a wife or somebody who's like amazing with a men or something like that. Um, uh, if you're by yourself, it's incredibly difficult, right? So, and when things got bad, we would just hunker down and work twice as hard. So we're never alone. I think that's one of the, you know, it's rare for a partnership to survive. It's based on trust. Uh, it's based on forgiveness. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, we, we realize most of the problems are process problems. It's not because we have character flaws. So um, that's liberating. Yeah. At what point in the business do you hire somebody that really takes the business to the next level where you're talking about kind of saving your time and, and making more money. Uh, what hire was that? Not necessarily the person, but the position that you guys knew that you needed to, like you mentioned, outsourcing uh, the accounting side of things, but inside of the business, what, what kind of hire took you guys, do you feel to the next level, whatever that might mean for the two of you? I think George, George, you touched on it, George. Like I think Indy, when we, we hired Indy, that was our first and probably the most important piece of the puzzle as an early uh, hire. We hired early on, we hired a landscape designer who had a degree and she was excellent and she helped us provide professional design services to our clients. We hired uh, an employee who was a trained stonemason and that helped us with our quality of work on some of those high-end stone work projects. We hired a master carpenter. Like we had at least one key person in each of those uh, specialties early on, like in the first 10 years of our business, all those positions were filled with, with basically experts in their field. 
And uh, I think we only had in those in the 90s, we might have only had maybe 15 employees, you know, and but we had, you know, five solid, high quality specialists. And that really allowed us to provide good quality. We could we could confidently sell to our clients. You're going to pay this much because you're going to get what you're paying for. And we could follow through on that. And and at the time, I mean, it's the business is more professional now. Absolutely. Back then, there was a lot more fly by night landscapers. It seemed there was a lot more really simplistic landscapes going in. So by doing some high-end finished carpentry and high-end quality stonework, we were able to distinguish ourselves uh, from our competition. And that helped us, you know, win those better projects and and the attention of the high-end architects who were handing out the work. The the other thing too also just to add to that is um, when you think about what keeps you up at night, it's people, right? So imagine you have somebody say, I'll give the hockey analogy. You have Sidney Crosby and your team. Okay. You're not worried about Sidney Crosby making mistakes. You're not worried about Sidney Crosby bringing the team down. You're not worried about Sidney Crosby being sick. You know, he's going to go score goals. You know, people are going to go see him play. And so we got lucky and there's a bit of luck in everything, right? It's not like it's all, you know, pure, pure talent that would, all these things happen, but we got lucky and we were able but capitalize on that luck. And it was basically people-centric, right? You get these awesome people. You saw people have been with us like 25 years and they are Sidney Crosby's. It's unbelievable. So just your life gets so much easier when you literally can take that part of your brain and not even worry about it. It just happens. And so the companies that are able to attract the talent and keep the talent are going to do way better. And for sure, you have to pay well. Like, uh, as one of my clients, the, the, won't say any names, but very wealthy clients said, if you if you if you uh, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So we always figured out that uh, it's better to pay more and get more than pay less and try and get more. It's unsustainable. So I think everybody has a value, and if you get the best value, you'll get the best results. So. Um, that would be, I say, one of the key secrets to our success is that is you know people, culture, process. The people part, we 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 got lucky, and we 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 don't put up with mediocrity at the end of the day, and that makes a huge difference. I just want to take a break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Cycle CPA. You may have a CRM or project management software in place, but what data are you using to ensure your estimating is accurate? Having a proper accounting setup and accurate bookkeeping done is key to understanding overhead expenses and other costs that must be recouped in your estimates. Cycle CPA is a remote bookkeeping and CFO firm that helps to connect the dots from the financial reports to the hardscape and landscape data needed in order to reach high profits. They provide landscape and hardscape industry benchmarking, job costing financials by service line, advisory meetings, and much more. Cycle CPA's team of accountants are specialized within the hardscape and landscape industry, and you can visit them at cyclecpa.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. Now back to our episode. 
We also want to say thank you to Inlight for sponsoring today's episode. Did you know that one of the easiest ways to grow your hardscape business and increase your revenue is by incorporating low voltage outdoor lighting to your projects? Using lighting can take your projects to the next level, make you more profit and add that wow factor and make your business stand out. As a professional hardscaper, we know you need reliable and high quality products to avoid callbacks and wasted time on job sites. That's why Inlight offers some of the highest quality lights and is the quickest system to install on the market. Their patented easy lock connector ensures that lighting will be the easiest thing you install every time. No heavy lifting, no massive machinery, just plug and play. Not only that, but InLight also provides many educational resources like online and in-person training, installation videos, unbeatable customer support, and more. Everything you need to successfully take your business to the next level with outdoor lighting and beyond. It's one of the many reasons why I stand behind InLight and many other companies that provide these educational resources to their clients, to contractors, and to help us grow our businesses. So for more information on how InLight can help grow your business, check them out on Instagram at InlightDesign. That's at I-N-L-I-T-E Design on Instagram. DM them to find out how to put more money in your pocket this season. So where do you guys find and keep those Sydney Crosbys? Like where uh, has been the best avenue that you have found that brings in the those A players? And in addition to that, how what kind of things have you put in place in order to retain them, you already mentioned pay, uh, paying, paying well. Uh, beyond that, how do we uh, hire and retain those types of employees? George touched on it, I think, earlier when you talked about what keeps you up at night. A lot of good employees, good workers, skilled trades, they have a lot to worry about, right? They got their their personal situation. They've got their own past work history. They've worked for a bad employer or they've been self-employed and they've struggled and they have a family and they have payments to make and employees. These people that, you know, they're looking to, to relieve themselves of those anxieties. And I know one of our best hires we hired in the middle of the recession after the 2008 uh, sort of slowdown in December because they had their own business and it was, they were struggling and they were willing to come work for us if we could give him work, but he needed work 12 months of the year because he had underperformed in his business and uh, he wasn't sustainable. And we found work for him in December, January, February, March. We kept him going 12 months of the year. We found high paying, good quality stonework for him to keep him busy so that we could attract him to our company and we did whatever we had to to keep him doing the stuff that he loves and relieve all of that stress about you know making the mortgage payment and and you know buying groceries like he got a regular paycheck every week or well every two weeks since then and that was 12 and a half years ago and he has not missed a payroll since right regular consistent pay and because he's a Sidney Crosby, he's made a lot of money with us, you know? And, well, the, uh, yeah. The other thing too, is a lot of people take their Sidney Crosby's and they put them in the management office. <laughs> well, I don't know if Sidney's going to make a good manager, but he can sure score goals or make everybody better around him or make, you know, 
teach them tricks of the trade, right? So, um, so one of the, I, I guess there's a few things. One is the Landscape Ontario uh, Awards gives us a lot of credibility and recognition. So we're very big on that. Um, networking through our own existing employees is huge. We use headhunters. So sometimes we'll spend thirty or $40,000 a year on trying to find talent, right? We also do a lot of, you know, speaking and things like that. And, you know, I would, I would argue that 95% of small businesses are suffering in some way, whether it's financially, emotionally, physically, um, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of pain. And generally speaking, um, the, the, there comes a point where they go, this isn't, nothing's changing. I can't all of a sudden get the magic bullet to change the, the, the direction of what's going on. And so we've basically, I would say, half our foremen have had their own businesses and just sort of um, come to work for us. And, and so, um, you know, it's getting harder and harder to be in business. Like there's more government red tape, right? Um, the cost of everything's going up disproportionately. Um, and, uh, and sometimes it's just easier to be part of a team and you end up working less and making more in the end anyway, with no risk and no headaches. So um, we've, we've been lucky to have these small companies either subcontract for us and then join the, join the collective, as we say, or, um, or they, um, they, uh, they approach us or they hear us speak, or, you know, there could be a number of different things. It could be somebody moving jurisdictions, but you get these people that are hardworking that understand what it is to run a business and, um, and they're no longer alone. Right. So I always had Peter. I always had Peter. So if you think of the two of us as sort of two legs of the stool, still a little bit wobbly, you know, you get another solid person there. And all of a sudden there's three legs of the stool, another leg, four legs, you can't knock it over. And so then it becomes a lot easier. And so, um, you know, I'm a big believer in, in companies amalgamating and getting bigger and specializing in, in their, their core competencies, as opposed to trying to do everything themselves. Uh, it's hard enough, let alone with the landscape skills, let alone the business administration skills that are required, right? So um, it's just too much for one person or even two people to handle. And you need a lot of luck, right? Like anybody that tells you that, oh, we're so successful uh, and, and, and they think that, you know, Peter and I are so great. Yeah, that's part of it. But I can tell you right now, there's a lot of luck involved. And, um, and you know, you can get knocked your legs knocked out from under you, one of those legs on the stool, if there's only one of you or two of you uh, pretty easily and, and there's not much you can do about it. So, um, you know, we is greater than me. And so the, the, our culture in the company is a we culture basically. So I really like that. And um, just to backtrack a little bit here, uh, when you were telling your story, the word recession came up and because that's a term that is very relevant to where we are today, I want to ask the two of you, what, what did you experience during past recessions in your business? Because every market is different and every industry is different the way a recession affects it. How, how did you guys sort of uh, not necessarily stay afloat, but move through a rece recession? And then what did you see on the other side of that recession for your business? Yeah, the worst, the worst recession for our landscape business was the early 90s. And that was because uh, Canada experienced its real estate crash then. So that was particularly difficult. And that's potentially 
more like what we're about to see than the 2000 recession or the 2008 recession, which were more stock market recessions and uh, the money market recession in the States and the American housing market. Um, the good thing for us in, in the early 90s was we were small and George and I were doing everything. So if we make five bucks less an hour working, if we're making five bucks an hour instead of 10 bucks an hour, we're still not losing money because we're just working harder. Um, in the, as we got bigger, it became a much bigger risk for us, obviously, because now we have uh, staff and overhead to carry. So we potentially could lose a lot of money if things get really bad. Um, but in the 2000 and the 2008 recessions, we were protecting ourselves by making sure we have good cash flow, making sure we have good uh, lease arrangements and financing arrangements with our equipment and our trucks so that we're not ever strapped for cash. Because you might have a bad year, even if you lost, you know, you lost $100,000 in a season. If it's not, if it's 100000 that you have to lose, then your, your business can continue the next year and you can make it back five times over the following year. So have making sure you're not running at the edge all the time. If you have a little bit of money in your business, don't take it out necessarily and go buy yourself a new fishing boat this year. You know, buy yourself a fishing boat if you still have some money left in your business for that rainy day thing. And, and, uh, and that's been always been our philosophy. In 2008, we were worried how big it was going to be because it got really bad in the States. And we weren't sure how it was going to be up here. And we made sure that we vertically integrated our company so that we were doing more of our own trucking, more, we did more snow removal. We did more, we did more things to keep our staff busy 12 months of the year, more things to keep our equipment busy 12 months of the year, rather than growing with staff or growing with equipment. We grew with services in our slow periods. You know, we do a lot of renovation work as well. So we were taking on renovation jobs in the winter and that kept staff employed, which meant we didn't have to lay anybody off in the recession. It's more work for us. It's harder to do the, all those extra types of projects in the off season, but it was what we felt would protect our core staff and our core equipment. So we were, we were in good shape then. I mean, now it's a, this is going to be a unique recession and it's possible it's gonna be a little bit more painful and a little bit longer. But again, if you're not if you're not fully leveraged with trucks, equipment, and staff and cash flow, then you have some flexibility to weather those. You know, they might have a few hard months. The spring might be particularly hard when you have low cash flow. But if you can get through those really tough periods, you can get across that river. Then there's huge opportunity on the other side. The, yeah, the other the other thing I'm going to add is brand is the antidote to recessions, right? So if you've got a really good brand, right? People don't want to take a risk with some fly-by-night guy and they give a deposit, you know what I mean? Like it, the network and the brand, right? So the brand comes through, obviously, your visibility, right? So they're aware of you. Uh, it comes with your reputation, right? And, uh, and trust. So at the end of the day, there's still people with tons of money. Like when there's a recession, you know, they talk about growth going from, you know, zero to like minus one or something percent, 
right? But it's only in certain sectors of the economy. Now, there's a psychological component to that. But if you really want something done and you've got $100 million, you're not going to be afraid to spend $200,000 on landscaping. Like it, it's, it's pocket change, basically. So the question is, why are they hiring you instead of the other guy? Well, they, most people in, in, in the 1%, which is who we like to work for, um, they, can't, they don't want to lose uh, and they'd rather pay a bit more to get it right the first time. And I think um, that perception, even though some smaller company could do it, perhaps, the perception is I'm going to go with the brand. And it's ironic, like uh, in 2008, they had the Mercedes-Benz guy uh, on TV, and he said, people can't afford to buy cheap. Thought, wow, that was a great line. Um, you know. And so in my head, someone's always buying the best and paying a premium, and there's value, right? Like I have an iPhone, I paid a big premium for it. And, you know, uh, it's, I, I wouldn't switch anymore. I'm just loyal and they got me. So the UX is great. And, um, and it's the same thing with landscaping and everything else. Brand is massive, right? So um, very important to do great customer service because the referrals are the secret. Like we barely, I, we spend, we spend, our marketing is on HR. It's not on getting work. Because our brand is so strong that the referral system is so strong, it self-perpetuates itself. As long as we do good work, we do great after service, we're going to get more work. Because people are not worried about whether I'm, you know, $500 more, $1,000 more. They're worried about whether I'm going to show up and do a good job and then take care of them afterwards. So I think that's one of the biggest secrets is to never, never uh, neglect the brand. That's huge. And how how does that sort of message get across to employees especially as new employees come on like you mentioned going for those a players but uh do you try to reiterate that that like service first uh sort of mindset and the vision of the business how do you get uh not uh absolutely like buy-in from employees, but like continuous buy-in from employees coming in that are new hires and everything like that. Where, where does that come from for you guys? So uh, I'll, so, okay, let's say you're a new employee and you come in for interviews, right? So you come in, what's the office like? What's the process for uh, the interview like? What's the process for the onboarding like, right? What do the trucks look like? What does the yard look like? Um, what is the, the portfolio of work that you've done like? You know, what awards have you won? So the, the employee that really cares, that isn't just, it's not a job. It's like, wow, they're, they're passionate, right? So there's care, curiosity, uh, and capacity, right? And the secret weapon is passion. So if somebody has passion and they step into a good process compared to where they were, it's like night and day. They're never leaving. Um, if they're already in a good process, they don't know any different. In case that's a bit of a problem because they might think the grass is greener than the side of the fence. But typically speaking, imagine that your branding is great. You've got all these awards. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing the work to submit for the Landscape Interior Awards. Um, you're part of the association. You're contributing. Um, the people that you get coming in, uh, well, they get screened, first of all. But second of all, the ones that you end up with are a higher caliber. And then their network of friends it's like where you look is where you're going to go. And so if you start doing things right, it just 
more things go right for you than wrong. Um, so it's a slow process. It's, it's, um, it's not, a, there's no secret to it. It really is. What do we do to be excellent in every metric of the business, how we treat people, um, what kind of tools we give them, the uniforms, the, 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 literally everything that we do has to be top shelf and it comes from care and passion, I think. Right. So we're hoping that, you know, the people that are on board, um, have that same mindset. I want to build great gardens. I want to work for nice people. I want to work for a nice boss. Um, and, uh, and so it just, it's becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. People will respond. Yeah. People will respond to what you reward them with. Right. So if you're giving positive feedback, you're paying for the skill level that they have, then the employees that have the right attitude will respond to that in a positive way. And we have we have employees that have been with us for a period of time and some of them don't survive that sort of culture of personal excellence and and continual improvement and, you know, and waking up early every morning, you know, the, all those things don't necessarily jive with every employee. So we have some turnover with our staff and, uh, you know, but the ones that really do click with the, with what we're trying to achieve here, those ones excel. And, you know, and, and we, we get a, a few new ones every year, but we have a few that are exceptional every year that just, you know, stick with us and, uh, and every year our goal is to be better than last year. So that's how we, that's, and you know, and that's the message we, we drive every day. Yeah. I, I like the idea of the hockey analogy where you think about the size of the bench and the depth of the bench. So the size of the bench ebbs and flows, but inevitably, inevitably year after year, we get closer to becoming a Stanley cup contending team because our fourth line is almost as good as the first line. And so um, as long as we're continuing to strive for that Stanley Cup every year, and hopefully we can win it, you know, three years in a row uh, or more, then um, it just everybody wants to play for a Stanley Cup winning team, right? So the mentality, the the yeah, it, it's it just it self perpetuates, and it, it, it's it's like there's a concept called kaizen, which is continual improvement, philosophy of continual improvement, and it really drives. Uh, over a long period of time, it's like glaciers, right? They literally move, move the earth. Um, uh, if you look back 10 years from now, if you implement Kaizen, it's like night and day how far you've moved. But if you didn't do it and you didn't consciously work on improving continually, then you're going to be stuck in the same place. And so a lot of businesses don't have that philosophy and they don't have the training and tools to make those changes. And like I said, you have to be patient. It doesn't happen overnight. Now you guys are consulting with business owners through Knowledge Tree Consulting. Uh, you can find that at knowledgetreeconsulting.ca. And I just want to ask the two of you with all the different business owners that you've talked to throughout your careers and through consulting, what's, what's a very common thing that people are struggling with in their business? And what can they do to be able to improve that something? I know we've probably touched on something in this interview already that's related to this, but maybe we can just sort of uh, hit home on something here that uh, a business owner can probably relate to listening to this and 
take away and go back to the office and really make a game plan as to how they're going to improve their business from that. Okay, so I, I I'm gonna okay. So here here's my thoughts on this. So number one, you're fearful. So what happens is you delay making decisions. So you move sideways. Okay. So you have to take a leap of faith. And once you take a leap of faith, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to fail, you're going to improve, or you're going to succeed beyond your wildest dreams, right? But 99% of the population is stuck in indecision and fear is the motivator. So one of my famous, I call decision trees, right? So there's strategic thinking and tactical thinking. Um, strategically, um, when, I, when, I, when I have a plan, right? And um, tactically, the decision tree is the first question I always ask. It's very simple. If I was to do this, would it put me out of business? And if the answer is no, then I'll do it. And then the question is, what should I do and what shouldn't I do? And what should I do is a function of uh, General Eisenhower. He came up with this square, the Eisenhower matrix. And there's four quadrants to the square. First quadrant, the top left, is urgent and important. So we have a tool called the SWAT Strategic Planner, and we identify our biggest problems and the biggest opportunities to fix. And we can't fix all our problems at once. So we do one, two, three, and we fix it. Boom, done. Um, there's important but not urgent. There's urgent but not important, and there's not important and not urgent. We don't care about those. The bottom other quadrant, not so important. The next one is going to be something that needs to be resolved somewhere or never because the urgent and important always changes, right? So if a recession comes, your urgent and important changes. So you have to be flexible, but nobody does planning. Nobody um, thinks tactically, like correctly with decision trees, if then logic. Um, and uh, that's why they're moving horizontally instead of up. And so, um, you know, think about this. I did this really cool, I'll show you on the, on the side when you come. I did this really cool graph of different businesses. And so on the top part of the graph, is all these different industries, say landscaping on the left, all the way to say consulting businesses on the right. On the vertical axis, you have all these difficulties the businesses face, right? Could be people, capital, education levels, business knowledge, weather, theft, bureaucracy, whatever it is, big list, okay? When you go to landscaping, I have three colors that I assign to the difficulty each company has. Uh, landscaping, uh, red is bad, Orange is tough and green is good, okay? Landscaping, I'll show you this, you'll laugh, on the entire spectrum is red. It's like literally the hardest business you could ever pick. And I've got restaurants, airlines, real estate, you know, tree removal, masonry, like it's the hardest. Now, the good news is most people actually only operate at 60% um, capacity. So they're wasting 40% of their time. That's how badly they're run. And because everybody survives at basically 60%, the ones that can get to 80 or 90 start to make lots of money. And so the trick is to eliminate the waste in your business. So I don't know if I answered the question, but um, basically it's a leap of faith and you have to invest in intangibles. You, you can buy a bobcat or you can buy a truck, so what? And probably you're buying the wrong one. You're trying to save money. It doesn't work very well for you. It's overloaded, whatever else. But you're not making good decisions, right? Because your choices are bad. And choice decision are two different things. So um, you have to be able to accept failure, right? 
you have to be able to accept losses without going out of business. And if you do that and you um, have some coaching to, to make the right decisions, your chances of success are exponentially higher. Um, and uh, if you don't do it, it's, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, if you if you play tennis, Nick Kigrios has no coach. Uh, surprise, surprise, he didn't win, right? So the best people, I love MMA, the best people hire the best coaches. And that's because they've been there and done that. And they can tell you what to do and what not to do. And so what not to do is almost more important than what to do. Easy not to do something bad, right? It's hard to do something good. So stop making mistakes. Let's just start with that. You're already going to be way further ahead. So that's sort of the, the method to the madness, I guess. I do have a question that came in because I did reach out to Jeffrey and Chuck at DTE Down to Earth Landscaping in Colorado there. And they wanted me to bring up two very simple words. And that is stupid simple what are those two words and what do those mean to efficiencies in your business systems, processes, whatever that might look like, but what does stupid simple look like when you're looking at a landscaping business and you're telling them to do stupid, simple and whatever that looks like. Yeah. Stupid, simple. Okay. So don't do bad things. Yeah. Right. And do more good things and then create a chart of bad things you're going to stop doing and a chart of good things you're going to start doing by most return on investment, highest ROI and easiest. And if you do that, you're going to improve a hundred times faster. That's nice and simple there for that. And I do have one last question for the, each of you to close out this interview here. And I do like to ask this to every business owner that comes on the podcast, because I, I do think it's a good question to close on here. And that is, what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew from the very beginning? That could be business related, personal related. It could have to do with anything at all. But what is that one thing you know now that you wish you knew from the very beginning? And I want to ask each of you that so that I can get two different answers for that. Yeah, it's... Uh... It, it has been a really interesting journey. And I mean, we're in such a different place now than when we started. And, you know, a lot of what we have achieved was planned. It was by choice that we, we built the business to this point. But it took a lot longer for us to find success than we expected. And I think, I think if I was to go back and start over again, knowing what I know, uh, I would spend a lot more time and money making those systems better at the beginning and hiring those key people early on and not trying to save a couple of bucks to struggle through it on my own and make my own. So many of my own mistakes. I mean, you're always going to make your own mistakes, but uh, there is a pathway that is that has been laid out. And we have discovered other people that have that are ahead of us in that you know, life of their business. And we look to them and, and try to emulate the good qualities and, I, and identify what's different about our business that is bad that we can eliminate. That's made a big difference. And we could have done that a lot earlier and saved ourselves a lot of, you know, a lot of struggles over the years. And it's just, you got to know where you want to go. You need a purpose. If you know where you want to go, it's a lot easier to drive there, right? Yeah, my answer to that question was, is, um, if improvement isn't growth. 
So grow the bottom line, not the top line. And so don't add another crew. Like there's a method to vertically integrate to grow your business. There's a method to it that actually is sustainable and safe. Most people grow because ironically, the more work you do and the less you charge, the more work you're going to get. So the trick is to charge more and do less work and make more money. And then create such a great brand that people start hiring you. You can afford to hire way better people. So your life becomes easier. And that's the self-perpetuating circle. So most people, all this work comes in, they say yes to everything. So again, no, I'm not working in Muskoka. It's too far away. No, I'm not working at the end of the city. No, I'm not working Mississauga. No, I'm not working. No, just became easier. My fuel costs went down, right? Um, you know, yes, I'm going to hire from this end of the city because we work mostly here. Um, so, you know, the work-life balance for your employees, if they're spending hours driving back and forth every day, that's unsustainable. So think about what you shouldn't do and what you shouldn't do and what you should do. And then, and then spend some money, like spend some money on intangibles. Like, you know, one of my favorite questions is um, if you were going to go to Harvard, if you, could, if you were smart enough to go to Harvard and you didn't have the money, would you go? And I always ask the audience this question. I get varying answers. Yes, no. If I was smart enough to go to Harvard, I would rob a bank to go to Harvard because the network I would get and the knowledge I would get would be lifetime priceless. And I'm talking priceless, right? So um, I think the intangibles, the investment in yourself is something that most of us in these small businesses don't do. We don't invest in education. Um, and whether it's going to school or hiring a consultant or taking more courses or educational workshop, whatever it is, you don't, if you, whatever, if you, um, it's, it's not what you know that's going to kill you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's uh, Mark Twain. And so a lot of us are ignorant and the ignorance kills us. And, um, you know, at least if, uh, if you know what's coming, you can be prepared. So. Guys, this is a great wide ranging interview. We could have chosen any of these topics and done a deep dive on them, but this was a great start to get to know the two of you and to really have this wide ranging conversation. Where can our audience go to find out more about the two of you, what you've got going on over there? Where do you want to send our audience to? So um, typically I do, so I don't work for Oriel anymore. I'm what's called the chief improvement officer. So I don't know what's going on the day to day, but I do consulting and I do anything that's process related to improve our business. So uh, I still use my Oriel landscaping email, george at oriolandscaping.com. So G-E-O-R-G-E at O-R-I-O-L-E landscaping.com. So if anybody has any questions or they want to get in touch with me, um, that's probably the best way uh, to, 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 to get in touch with me. Uh, and uh, I met Peter at oriolandscaping.com and, uh, and just so you know, George, things are going well here. So oh, that's good. no worries. <laughs> Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. Go to speakpipe.com slash howtoheartscape if you want to record a voicemail about this episode, anything that you want to have aired on this podcast for Thursday's episode, or anything in general that you want to talk about in our industry. That's speakpipe.com slash howtoheartscape. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.